0: Ephesians chapter 2. I want to just start here. We're actually, we, we won't really spend any time in this passage, but I wanted to start here just as sort of a reminder of uh, some of the things that we have discussed already to serve as a, uh, a backdrop for what we'll talk about this morning in this uh, series on the church, which is the importance of church membership. So in Ephesians 2, if you'll start with me in verse 13, We'll read Ephesians 2.13 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll skip ahead a little bit and read a couple verses in chapter 3. As we read, use this as an opportunity to be reminded of what it is that God does in creating the church through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it is, on the one hand, the way through Christ's death that we are reconciled to God, but also because of the work of Christ, we are reconciled to one another. And one of the significant ways that God displays His glory in this broken world is to show that sinners, because they have been transformed by the grace of Christ, are transformed in such a way that they can coexist and live, not just tolerating one another, but living peacefully and lovingly with one another. So, in Ephesians 2, verse 13, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus... "'You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace.' And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And then skip down a little bit further in Ephesians 3 and pick up with me at verse 8. Listen to what Paul says here about the significance of the church as a gathered people. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 8, "...to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold or the varied wisdom of God might now be made known through the church." to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, this, this display of God's wisdom through the church, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, in much weakness, we ask that you would show yourself to be strong by the presence of your Holy Spirit in our midst. We ask that you would use this time to convince us of the fact that the words that we hear, so long as we read and preach and think clearly and consistently, that the words that we hear are not the words of men, but it is the Word of God which powerfully accomplishes its work in us. Help us, Father. Father to have a renewed appreciation for what it is that we enjoy here as your people gather together on the Lord's Day to celebrate and worship you for the salvation that you have given us by offering up your Son on our behalf and by giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Help us to find ways, even as we discuss here this morning, to find ways to more actively and meaningfully apply and work out our salvation in fear and trembling together with one another in Jesus name that we ask for this, amen. We have been, thank you, that's actually a good reminder, (laughs) okay. I went ahead and I did something even better. Not only did I put my phone on silent, I put it on airplane mode, all right, so go and do thou likewise. Church membership. This is actually the next to the last sermon in the series that we're gonna do. We're, we're talking about church membership today and next Sunday we're going to, uh, to cap everything off with uh, a sermon on church leadership and the way that these two ideas, membership and leadership work hand in hand and complement each other. Uh, for our purposes, I thought it would be helpful to sort of, again, remind us of the foundation that we laid all the way back when we started this series, to, uh, to say again, to define what the church is. Because part of uh, the struggle that we have in working our way through the Scriptures, and I think in, in coming to terms with what God has to say and what God reveals about the significance of the church, oftentimes can be uh, traced back to sort of weak or incomplete definitions it's good for us in other words to be able to say very specifically based on what we see in Scripture what God has revealed this is what the church is so if you have your notes with you you should have at the top of your page in bold that definition of the church the church we said weeks ago is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, spiritually united to Christ and to one another by the Holy Spirit in a new covenant. We use that definition and we, we used that phrasing or that framework to then draw our attention back to at least two key passages, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, among others. But Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 where the Lord prophetically declares through the prophet that there's coming a day in which I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. And one of the things that's going to characterize this new covenant is that unlike the old covenant, which dealt with uh, a physical, fleshly nation, I'm going to create for myself a people who are not characterized or identified primarily by a genealogy Or by a family tree, but are going to be characterized by the renewing work of my Holy Spirit. It's going to be an internal work that I'm going to do. I'm going to give them new hearts. I'm going to write my laws on their hearts so that they will know me and so that they will obey me. This is my covenant that I'm going to make or that I will make with my people. And then as we fast forward ahead into the New Testament, we see in passages like we just read in Ephesians 2, That Paul actually sort of goes one better than that and says, listen, the plan that God had to create the church was not a plan that He created at some particular point in time in Old Testament history, but this was actually His purpose and His intention in eternity past. Before the world was ever created, God knew and intended to create the church through the work of His Son and His Holy Spirit. And we pressed on that a little bit further and we said that one of the things that we need to remind ourselves of, particularly as modern day, Western culture, American people who prize individuality, who are suspicious of authority or institutions, is to realize that that sort of mindset or culture in many ways makes it difficult for us to think biblically with what God has determined to do for His people, namely, that yes, God does save a person, but He saves persons to make them a people. That throughout the biblical storyline, in the Old Testament all the way to the New, God is always working with a people for Himself to accomplish His work, and that's no less true in the New Testament when we come to the church. And so more often than not, when we read in the New Testament and we see what God says about what he does for his people and with them, we ought to consider that while my natural tendency is to read this as if it only is dealing with me. So much of the New Testament, if not the majority of the New Testament, yes, is something that God does for me, but really is much bigger than that. It's what God has done, is doing, will do for His people, of which we are a part. So we started to work through this series, and we said, okay, if this is what the church is, that we are first and foremost... A spiritual people who have been made by a unique work of God in Christ, that we have been bound to this new covenant work, and in being united to Christ, being united also then to one another, because everyone who's in Christ and who is united to Him is going to be connected with everyone else who is united to Christ. What are some of the other implications or some of the other things that we see about the church? What is it that marks a church out? What makes it distinct? as a church as opposed to just a group of Christians? What has God done through His Son? What has Christ done uniquely? What has He given to the church, say, in terms of ceremonies or signs to remind them of the fact that they are a covenant community? That's the ordinances. What does the church do when they gather together, right? We grow, we mature. As we interact with one another, we give of our time, of our resources, and on and on and on. So what we want to do this morning is we want to say of all the things that we've looked at, one of the logical and natural implications of these prior messages is church membership. And I want to be very, very careful here, okay? So everyone, please listen to what I'm saying and what I'm not saying, okay? Church membership, I'm saying, is a natural implication of what we find in Scripture because, unlike, say, baptism or the Lord's Supper or the New Covenant, I don't have a chapter and verse that I can point you to to say, see, here it is, thou shalt join a church or thou shalt apply for membership at Edgewood Baptist. I don't have a chapter and verse to do that. However, I think that as we read with sensitivity, especially in the New Testament, one of the things that we become convinced of is that to a certain extent, what we would call membership, although it may look a little bit different in the way that we practice it or the way that we we recognize it, membership is all but assumed in the New Testament. So, for example, a couple weeks ago in our evening service, which, by the way, is at 6 o'clock tonight, in the sanctuary, here. One of the reasons that you ought to come is is because from time to time we actually give away free books. Okay, I thought there would be maybe some oohing and (laughs) aahing. Help us, Lord. All right, we give away free books, and, and one of the things that we did a couple weeks ago, we gave away a little booklet to a couple people. Uh, by Mark Dever. And the and, uh, title of the booklet is, Why Should I Join a Church? Okay? I've got, a, I've got about half a dozen of these little booklets sitting on the front row. What I'm going to do at the end of the service today, I'm going to take it out with me to the back. I'm going to put it on the information desk, and it's first come, first serve. All right? If a riot starts, <laughs> I would love for there to be a riot over books. I don't think it will be. Here, let me, let me read to you a portion of what Dever says to sort of prod your thinking about what we mean when we say that sort. there is a natural implication as we read the New Testament that would point us in the direction of meaningful church membership. In this little booklet, Dever says this in part, and I'm, I'm quoting from him. Have you ever noticed that it's actually impossible to obey God's commands without committing yourself to a local church. Survey the New Testament, and you'll quickly find that the Christian life is not merely about the affirming—not uh, merely about affirming the right doctrines or pursuing individual isolated virtues. It is that. Don't he's he's not denied, it. but it's not merely that. Instead, Scripture consistently shows that the Christian life revolves around the local church, a structured community with people of different ages, ethnicities, interests, and economic backgrounds. He goes on to say, many commands in Scripture assume a deep and abiding relationship between fellow believers who regularly gather in a local church, commands like to love one another, to seek peace and unity, to avoid strife, to care for one another physically and spiritually, to watch over one another and hold one another accountable, to work to edify one another, to pray for one another, to keep away from those who would destroy the church, to contend together for the gospel, and to be examples to one another. You hear all that? You, we will find it very difficult, if not next to impossible, to really live out these kinds of commands unless we are consciously committing ourselves to specific Christians in a local gathering on a regular basis. J.T. read this morning from John chapter 13 where Jesus says, after he had washed the disciples' feet in the upper room, he says, do you you see, do you recognize what I just did? I I am leaving for you an example. You are to do what I did for you. You're to do it to one another, right? So things like foot washing or maybe symbolic there, but loving one another practically, sacrificially. How will you do that unless you know specifically who ought to be an object of your love and care and concern? right? A lot of what happens, or too often what happens, let's say it this way, particularly in American Christianity, is that we'll, we'll get, we can, we can have sent or affirmed to the doctrinal portions of Christianity, to the faith, we have little to no concept or at least an impoverished view of the church. And so when it comes to, to commands like love your brother or sister, right, care for them, pray for them, hold them accountable, and stuff like that. We, we affirm that those are good things, but we don't have anyone to do that with. The New Testament, both in the teachings of Jesus and in the apostles, assumes that there will be a group of Christians that regularly gather together on Sunday mornings, on the Lord's Day, who are invested and committed to one another, not just on Sunday, but through every other day of the week as opportunities arise, so that they can live out in real life the commands that we're given in Scripture. You say, well, all that's fine and good, Merritt, but as you yourself said, there's no chapter and verse that says, thou shalt become a church member. No, there's not. Let me, let me try to provoke and prod a little bit more thinking, though, again, about some things that we oftentimes overlook in the New Testament. When you go to the book of Acts, the church begins in Acts chapter 2. Peter has his sermon. The people are convicted of what they hear in, pre, in Peter preaching about Christ and the gospel. Luke tells us that as a result of that sermon, that 3,000 people came to the Lord, how does he know that 3,000 people came to the Lord? Is it possible that on day one the church was taking into account, was actually counting converts as a way to say these 3,000 are us and these other hundreds of thousands in Jerusalem are not us? Later, we're told that another 2,000 is added to the 3,000. They're counting once again. And then on and on through Acts, Luke will make these statements like, and the Lord was continuing to add to their number daily. It sounds an awful lot like the apostles themselves were taking stock of people who were being brought into the faith so that they could count these people as one of their own. That sounds very similar to church membership. Later on in the New Testament, Paul in 2 Corinthians, you don't need to turn there, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6, just so you know that I'm not making this up. Paul is referring back to an individual from the Corinthian church who has been disciplined and separated from the church. And Paul makes a very interesting statement. He says, the punishment or the discipline that has been brought to bear on this brother, by the majority, is sufficient. How does Paul know that the majority of the church brought church discipline to bear on this one single Corinthian Christian? Don't you, don't you to be able to say that a majority did this, don't you have to have some concept of a fixed group of people in order to say this is a majority and this is a minority? It sounds like Paul knew who the Corinthians were as a church gathering, as a church congregation. And then later, in another letter to Timothy, Paul talks about widows in the church. And he says, for all of you crazy administrative type weirdos out there who like your lists and stuff like that, Paul says, the church ought to care for those widows who are true widows or widows indeed, depending on how your your version reads. And he goes on to say, widows are to be put on the list if they meet these qualifications. And he describes things like if they've had children if they've been a practicing Christian, if right? So not only is Paul saying, you ought to know who the widows are in your church family that you're responsible for, he actually is able to go in and say, and you ought to then have another window in your software program where you can break out not just the widows, but widows of different kinds and in different needs. They didn't have software, but you get the idea. All of this assumes then That from the very earliest beginnings, the church had an awareness, was conscious of the fact that we are a people together. So when we talk about church membership, all that we're simply referring to is this. By faith in Jesus Christ. We acknowledge and we affirm that everyone who has come to true saving knowledge in Jesus Christ is automatically made a member of the true church of God in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can change that. What we're pressing for, though, what we want to begin to cultivate or renew our minds to to recover some is this concept of the fact that what God has done for us spiritually ought to be manifested or displayed in visible ways. So to the extent that I count myself as part of the true church, that that is a spiritual thing that God has done, I also then want to show that I'm part of that invisible church, that spiritual community of God, in part by saying, Because I'm part of the true covenant people of God, I want to make myself known to these covenant people that I see on a regular basis. I want to bind myself to them as we walk together with Christ. So, church membership, just simply stated, is a formal and public commitment to a particular local church. In the brief time that we have left, here's what I I hope for you. I hope that as we talk about church membership, if you're a member of Edgewood, I hope what what we do here in looking at some of these passages sort of reminds you or renews in your mind the importance of what it means to be part of the body, the congregation at Edgewood, that it is not a mere formality. If you're here as a Christian and you are not a member of Edgewood, I hope that you would be convinced by the Scriptures that we look at here in just a moment that one of the best things that you can do for your faith and for your maturity in Christ is to become a member of a local church. It doesn't even have to be Edgewood, right? Edgewood is not the only true church in the city of Columbus or the state of Georgia. There are other good churches that you can go to, but you ought to be a member somewhere. And then lastly, third, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you, you don't know what it means to be part of the people of God, I hope that what you're hearing here almost sort of creates in you a sort of spiritual jealousy, if I can say it that way. That you're provoked and, and prodded to say, I, I want some of that. And I want some of that because of what Christ offers and what He gives to His people. So if church membership is a formal and public commitment to a particular local church, let's also say up front that it, does not, it is not super complicated in how you become a member of a local church. We don't have time to flesh it out right now because I do want to look at some New Testament passages, but we're going to say just in shorthand and for the sake of time that what is necessary for church membership, and you have it there in your notes, is a profession of true faith in Christ with a corresponding life and conduct. That is, a a person who is going to become, who is going to identify themselves as a covenant member of Christ's people ought to be able to say or affirm that they have been brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ because there's no other way to be made part of God's people apart from faith in Christ. But with that faith, And being made part of the people of God is also a transformation of heart and mind and conduct that lends credibility to that profession of faith. Doesn't mean that Christians, in order to join a church, have to be perfect. Doesn't mean they have to be super saints. But it ought to mean that they are seriously striving to be more like Christ and to obey Him as often and as much as what they can, okay? So, let me give you three reasons why we join a church, or three reasons why you ought to consider joining a church. Number one, we join a church to affirm and submit to God's work. So, if you have your Bibles open, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and listen to what Paul says. Let me start with verses 12 and 13 just to sort of set the stage, and then we're going to read a handful of other verses coming after that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13, Paul says, "'For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body,' whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, if you were to stop right there, it would be understandable and perhaps even defensible to say, well, what Paul is talking about there in terms of being one body, he's talking about the spiritual reality that all Christians across the globe, when they put faith in Christ, have been made part of one body. That, that is true. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind because of what he goes on to say. This is in a context in which Paul is talking about the spiritual gifts that are being exercised in the local congregation at Corinth. And so listen, when, he, when, when Paul is talking about the church body, listen to how specific he is in some of these following verses. So from 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, skip down to verse, uh, what verse do we want? Verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. Skip down to verse 24. We're picking up in mid-sentence, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. And then verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. And he goes on and on and on. Everybody's different. Do you, do you hear what Paul is doing here? Paul is saying that the one body that God has created is even so specific that God has drawn individual Christians together and made them a part of this body at Corinth. That body at Ephesus, right? It's not just some sort of vague, ambiguous generality where we are all one happy family or one... No, there is a real specific expression of that unity in Christ that is given visible manifestation in a local church body. Listen, here's the importance of a statement like that and why it's important for us at Edgewood. We need to think and understand, be reminded of the fact that especially, let's start with those of us who are members here at Edgewood Baptist. If you are a member here at Edgewood Baptist, I'm reading what Paul is saying here about how God places members in the body And I want to be able to say confidently and with full assurance to you that if you are a member here at Edgewood Baptist, it is not by accident. You are not an afterthought to the congregation of Edgewood. If you're a member here, you're here because God put you here. Let me take one next step. Paul makes it very clear that what is being stressed or emphasized is membership in a body, being a member, not an attender. So, if you're here as a Christian and you are attending Edgewood, but you are not joining Edgewood, you attend, but you're not a member, all right, listen, like I said, You can find membership, you can join, you can be part of a church anywhere else so long as it is a true church that has a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, preaches Him as the sufficient sole place of salvation. But here's what I would encourage you to consider. Is it possible that God has drawn you to this particular place to hear and listen to His voice because He intends for you not merely to be a hanger-on or a bystander or an attender, but because He wants to make you a member of this body here at Edgewood. Is it possible that one of the things that we members and potential members ought to consider is that the reason that God brings us together in a congregation like this is, at least for, this, for no more complicated reason than what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 12, which is he puts all these crazy, weird, odd people together because God in His wisdom has equipped all of us with different gifts and skills and strengths that we need from one another. And the reason that he has brought me to Edgewood is because you need me. And the reason he's brought you to Edgewood is because I need you. And the reason that you may be attending Edgewood on the cusp of being part of Edgewood is because we desperately need what you have to offer because of the spirit that resides within you. One of the ways then that you can affirm the fact that God does not work haphazardly is to consider that membership is a way that you say, I am trying to give expression or to acknowledge the fact that in all of my twists and turns and crazy wanderings in life, I am here because God has brought me here. You do not need to be allergic to the idea of membership. It is a good thing." Church membership affirms God is working in our midst. It's one of the ways that you give testimony to the fact that you are not a nominal Christian, that you know that God is growing you because He is drawing you further and further in to be part of His covenant community. It's one of the ways that you acknowledge and affirm that God is wiser than we are, right? Because if we're going to be the ones who think that all of this is about us, we're going to say, well, this church isn't young enough. This church isn't old enough. This church isn't hip enough. This church isn't poor enough, not rich enough, right? Rather than saying, maybe God has brought me here to this church with this motley crew of people because he is far wiser than I am and he knows that this church is exactly what I need. So, we ought to join a church so that we can affirm and submit to God's work of drawing His people together and putting them in meaningful, committed relationships to worship Him and to serve one another. Number two. We ought to join a church so that we can make a distinction or so that we can maintain a distinction between God's people and the world. We're going to stay in 1 Corinthians, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and pick up with me at verse 9. In the context of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is talking about the fact that there is at least on the part of one church member at Corinth, there is gross immorality, immorality that would make even pagans blush. And the Corinthians think that they're just sort of above it all. They're, sort of, they're super saints, and so because we're super spiritual, nothing really phases us, and we don't really need to worry about this sin because we're pure and untouchable, and we're just sort of we're, we're floating up here above all the rest of the riff-raff. We don't need to worry about that. And Paul says, no, you're dead wrong. So he goes on to say, you need to deal with this problem in part because this sin is going to permeate the body. It's going to infect it and make it sick. That's a discussion for another time. Listen, though, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, through the end of the chapter. Paul says this, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then notice verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. It is abundantly clear from these verses that Paul has very clear, distinct categories of those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. And one of the reasons why people ought to be, Christians ought to be inside the church, not with the church, not near the church, in the church, inside, part of the people. One of the reasons that that ought to happen is because it separates us, it distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Do not misunderstand what Paul is saying here or what I'm trying to suggest. This is not a holier-than-thou, condescending, sort of looking down your nose at everyone who's not a member at Edgewood Baptist. That is not what Paul is saying. But if Paul can say, because of this immoral, unrepentant sin, this brother, who at least professes to be a brother, ought to be put out of the church, you can't put someone out of the church unless they were first in the church. Do you see that? You have to have some way of conceiving, of knowing, of recognizing that this is the group. These are the people who are in the church and those are the people who are not in. In other words, there needs to be meaningful membership in a local congregation so that we know and recognize one another as being part of the church family. And, the, and one of the reasons why we need to have a very clear self-conscious, self-aware idea of membership in a local church is because, God forbid, like happened in Corinth, there is ever any sort of rampant sin or immorality that would reveal itself at Edgewood, unrepentant sin, that is not in keeping with the Christian faith, that is not in keeping with the commands of Christ. We need for the sake of the purity of the church and for the reputation of Christ himself, we need to have the ability to say this is out of bounds. Because if we cannot distinguish or separate ourselves from the sin that exists in the world around us, what makes us special? What makes us different? Why would anyone look at us and say there's something strange and peculiar about those people. God is all about making His people look strange and peculiar to the outside watching world. You want to be really strange and peculiar? Join a church. Number three. One of the reasons that we join a church, or that we ought to join a church, is to receive added security for our souls. If the first two points that we made doesn't prove persuasive to you, doesn't motivate or encourage you, I hope this one does. If you're not concerned about the security of your own soul, I don't know how much help I can give you. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 17. Writing to a church community, to a gathering of Christians, towards the end of his letter, he says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Just think with me for a second. Certainly, at the time that this letter is being written, there are hundreds and thousands of Christians scattered across the Mediterranean world. Certainly, there are different gatherings. Certainly, there are different leaders in the church. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, "...Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls." Let me suggest to you that one of the ways that God intends to keep us in the faith is by identifying ourselves to other people in the faith to say, here I am, I'm to be counted among your group so that you can watch out for me and I can watch out for you. On a Sunday morning a shepherd or a pastor or elders, the primary responsibility that leaders have to a church congregation, the primary responsibility is to the members, to the congregation of that church. That's not to say that we don't take phone calls, that we don't counsel, or that we don't appeal and plead and minister and serve to people who are not Edgewood members, not at but it is to say that there is a unique responsibility that church leaders have to those members of the church that they have been entrusted with. If you want to have someone keep watch over you to make sure that you are staying on the path, that you are staying healthy and growing and being fed in the Christian life, one of the best Simplest ways to do that is to become a known, recognized member of a church, because when you do that, that sends a signal to knuckleheads like me that you're intending for me to keep an eye on you. Otherwise, I don't know what you want. I don't know why you're here. You like the music? You like the carpet? you like, the people, I, what, what, what can we do for you? Right, we'll do it. But when you, when you become a member, when you identify yourself as a known recognized member of the church, that puts church leaders on notice to say, okay, you're responsible for them now. And one of the best things that God has done is to create that kind of structure and format so that none of us are left to our own devices trying to make our way through this world with all of the challenges and all of the, the pressure And trying to hold our faith and our sanity on our own strength or by our own means. We need one another. And I need to know that you need help and want help and guidance. And I need you to know that I need help and I need guidance. And one of the ways that I do that very clearly is I say, I am part of Edgewood. If you're part of Edgewood, you're responsible for me and I'm responsible for you. Another thing that gets the same point across, if you go over just a couple pages to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, the last two verses of the letter, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know why church membership is good? Church membership is good for your soul because when you are tempted to stray and when you do start to drift a little bit, your membership in a local church gives other church members the responsibility and the privilege to call you out on that, to warn you, to plead with you, to persuade you not to do that foolish thing. If you're not a member at a church and you know, like, you, you recognize that person is in a bad way, right, it is very difficult for you to insert yourself into that situation because what's going to run through your head and what's going to run through my head is I don't really think that's my place, right? But if you're an Edgewood member and you see another Edgewood member who's starting to do this James 5, 19 or 20, guess what? It is your place. And on the authority of God's Word, you have the responsibility to go to that brother and sister and to try to save them from the pain and suffering that comes from the deceitfulness of sin. And that works in the reverse way as well. Right? We should not be so foolish or so, uh, so prideful to think that it's really all of these other members who need us looking out for them. I need you looking out for me. You need people looking out for you. Because none of us are immune to temptation. All of us... Get stuck in our little selfish, self centered bubbles, and we don't see things the way that we ought to. We need another brother or sister to come alongside of us and say, I think you're missing this merit, and you're heading for disaster. That's what membership does it gives you buy in, it gives you the ability to be able to, with the love of Christ, through the ministry of the Spirit working through you, to be able to lovingly bring to bear God's Word in specific situations to people that you rub shoulders with on a regular basis. And it gives them the authority and the privilege and the freedom to give you that same gift and grace as well. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to end the service now. We are going to have an evening service tonight at 6 o'clock, okay? One of the things that we're going to do in the evening service tonight is we are going to vote in some new members, some unfamiliar faces, some more familiar, all right, but members nonetheless. Because of the fact that what church membership means is that when we receive new members, we are essentially saying that they are us and we are them, right? There's a responsibility, there's there's a tie, a connection there. My encouragement to you would be come back tonight so that you can affirm these new members that are coming into our body so that you can recognize faces and names and can consider I now am tied to them in a very real and specific way. All right, so I'm counting numbers right now. I'm looking to see how many people are in the pews, and we better have this number later on tonight. Listen, one of the most encouraging things that, that, you, will, that you will find, and at least I find this for myself, it is encouraging for you to be here, to just simple, by the raise of your hand, to affirm that we're going to bring these people in. What you're, when you do that, one of the things that you are recognizing and realizing is God is working here. And I don't know about you, but this world is so crazy and messed up that I long and crave and hunger to see any kind of sign or indication that God is still working. He works by bringing people to us to be part of us. And I would encourage you to come back tonight at 6. After we do, uh, we bring in some new members. We also will open up the floor for some Q&A. That has not been quite rowdy and raucous, but it has been interesting. And you will not, you, well, yeah, you probably will not be disappointed if you stick around for the Q&A also. We do feedback on the things that we've been looking at in the Sunday sermon. Let me pray for us, and I'll see you at 6. Father, how wise you are not to leave us on this journey to ourselves, to our own faulty minds, to our own fickle hearts. But thank you that one of the ways that you work in real time, in real places, is through your church, through a gathering of your people at a specific time, in a specific location. Help us, Father, to continue to remind ourselves of the importance of what it is that you have created here, not us, you, and that we would take full advantage of all of the gifts of grace and mercy that you extend to us through this gathering of believers that we refer to as Edgewood Baptist Church. We pray tonight as we look ahead to bringing in, affirming the reception of some new members, that you would fill us with joy and gratitude that you have continued to work in our midst and are bringing additional people to us, And that that would uh, solidify us in our faith, that we would continue to persevere knowing that you have not left us or abandoned us. Thank you for all the many things that you have done in this group of believers here at Edgewood Baptist. And it's in the name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.
1: i so- Bless you, you're dismissed.